The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. We were struck that this, this is going to be the same thing on steroids. Because pneumonia is tough to diagnose, sepsis is that much tougher to diagnose because it's a much, much bigger heterogeneous uh, syndrome. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Thank you for uh, listening to this podcast. Uh, today's podcast is based upon articles written by uh, Dr. Michael Klompis and Dr. Chanu Ree over a five-year period, three separate articles. The first two are ideas and opinion pieces. The 2016 article is the CMS sepsis mandate, right disease, wrong measure. Then four years later in 2020, they wrote an ideas and opinion piece called Who Owns Sepsis? And finally, just in April 20th, 2021, they wrote an editorial titled Has the Medicare Sepsis Performance Measure Catalyzed Better Outcomes for Patients with Sepsis? This is an editorial based upon an article in the same issue of the annals titled Treatment Patterns and Clinical Outcomes After the Introduction of Medicare Sepsis Performance Measure, SEP1, written by Ian Barbash and colleagues. Dr. Klompis is an infectious disease physician. He's the hospital epidemiologist and professor of population medicine. He publishes widely on surveillance, diagnosis, prevention, and treatment of hospital-acquired pneumonia ventilator-associated events, and sepsis. Dr. Chanu Ree is both an infectious disease and critical care physician, and he's associate hospital epidemiologist at Brigham Women's Hospital. We think you'll learn a lot from this wide-ranging discussion. Thank you for listening. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I had read your articles before and had not linked them up until I started preparing for this podcast. And the wonderful editorial that you wrote about the article in uh, the recent annals on how the sepsis bundle impacts treatment patterns and, and outcomes. But I love going back to your 2016 article when CMS first had the mandate. And so I think it would be really worthwhile for you to talk about your concerns back in 2016, why you were worried, and what your critique was of the original performance measure. So first of all, just, just thanks for the opportunity to be able to chat. Really appreciate it and uh, appreciate your kind interest in our work. Back in 2015-16, when the, the sepsis measure was first being released, we worried that there were striking parallels to CMS's experience with their old pneumonia measure which uh, you recall had required hospitals to give antibiotics within four hours of, um, of arrival for patients with pneumonia. And the worry there was that that recommendation was based on retrospective analyses of, of people with discharge diagnosis of pneumonia, 
which found that those who got earlier antibiotics had uh, did better than those who, who had later antibiotics. And our fundamental problem with that was that um, there's a world of difference between a retrospective look at somebody who has a final discharge diagnosis of pneumonia compared to the real world messiness of trying to make that diagnosis in real time in a patient who has, who's, who's undifferentiated. And we all know from our frontline clinical experiences that making the diagnosis of pneumonia is tough. There are lots of mimicking conditions, there are lots of confounders, and uh, we know that a good chunk of the time we, we, we don't get it right. And for those patients who have a mimicking condition like CHF or a COPD exacerbation or a PE or whatever the case may be, the antibiotics in those cases might actually be, be harmful. That's a rush to, to, to give antibiotics. Tunnel vision of a clinician's thinking might lead them to ignore other important potential diagnoses and might cause direct harm to the antibiotics themselves. And so as CMS said about creating its sepsis measure, we were struck that this was going to be the same thing on steroids. Um, because if pneumonia is tough to diagnose, sepsis is that much tougher to diagnose because it's a much, much bigger heterogeneous uh, syndrome. A good chunk of sepsis is pneumonia, but it's a bunch of other things as well. And again, for a doc in the, in the, in the trenches, the front line who has to make that diagnosis as, as a patient's rolling through the door, it's really difficult to know when a person first strikes the door who has it or not. And yet here was a proposal to require that these patients all get antibiotics, fluids, lactate measures, you know, so on and so forth, in a very short interval of time, three hours rather than, than four hours. And so the, the potential for misdirection of diagnostic uh, thinking, um, overuse of antibiotics, overuse of fluids seemed that much greater to us. The parallel concern was that the construction of the measure itself was very, I think, resource intensive for hospitals. It was a, sort of a very rigid kind of a bundle with lots of things that had to be done in a short uh, amount of time and a very, very rigorous reporting requirement for hospitals to, that, that in practice requires you know, an hour or two work per, per chart to dive into the details to work out when did the doc suspect the infection was present, what kind of organ dysfunction did the patient have, exactly when did that organ dysfunction start, when did the patient meet various metrics for, for various kinds of treatments and diagnostic tests. So it requires a whole lot of work. So if you sort of try to balance those two factors, the fact that clinically it might lead people down the wrong pathway or forcing to jump to early conclusions and the administrative burden, it, it really seemed like a, like a mismatch on both those, uh, those, those fronts. I spent years doing, uh, have spent years doing medical decision-making and being very interested in sensitivity and specificity. And so let me see if I can put this another way, both with the four-hour pneumonia rule, and I'm so glad you brought that up because I bring it up all the time, and the sepsis bundle. The goal of these models is to increase the sensitivity of making the diagnosis, but the creators often forget that you cannot increase sensitivity without decreasing specificity. And so therefore you're gonna get a lot of false positives. The only way to get more true positives is to get more false positives. There was also a bit of a tension between the critical care community and the infectious disease community. And China, you, you live in both those communities and maybe you, you could speak to that because you deal with both sides. Yeah, yeah, sure. And, and, and also uh, echoing my thanks for inviting me to, to join. I think part of the tension you're referring to is sort of um, on, the, uh, on the risks versus benefits of immediate antibiotics. I think you know, as an intensivist, it's very easy and understandable uh, to be in the mindset, you, know, you never want to miss a potential case of sepsis, even if you have to overtreat many, many patients to do so. Um, I think our 
threshold to to be uh, wrong is extremely low, and I think that's that's very understandable. You know, obviously taking care of a lot of these sick patients, sort of always that concern of like, am I missing something? Uh, let's make sure we have our, our bases covered. I think a lot of that uh, mentality has um, really flown over into you know sepsis care and a lot of this focus on time to antibiotics. I would say from the perspective of infectious disease doctors, of course, I think ID doctors also don't want to undertreat patients and don't want you know, untreated sepsis to, to, to progress, of course. I think a lot of the ID community does have antibiotic stewardship a little bit more front and center of the minds and sort of, um, you know, the concerns around uh, that Mike mentioned in terms of overtreatment and the development of resistance and C. difficile and other adverse effects. And I think sort of taking a step back, um, it sort of kind of gets that one major point I would bring up is around sort of the, the quality of the evidence to support the step one bundle in terms of does it really make an impact in terms of uh, patient outcomes? If you really, you know, adhere to this bundle and, and, and give antibiotics within three hours and do all the other things, you know, how much of a difference does that also make? And I think that's where sort of the idea and critical care community sometimes have had differing opinions. I will say that uh, when we first wrote about this in that 2016 editorial, we also brought up that concern that the SUP1 bundle um, in large part was inspired uh, maybe not directly, but but sort of this whole concept of bundled care was, you know, derived from the early goal-directed therapy trials, and that had been the um, sort of the the bible of sepsis care for for more than a decade. But right when the SEP1 measure was coming out, is when three multinational randomized trials of early goal-directed therapy uh, were being published and showing actually no benefit in terms of this protocolized care compared to standard cares. So I think I think that's a really another really important. Uh, piece of this discussion is uh, sort of this question of what are these, whether these bundles um, really improve mortality and whether uh, the time to antibiotics, which is a big focus of it, how important really is that in, the, in affecting patient outcomes? Michael, I get along really well with our infectious disease group, which is outstanding. And I've talked to them about this a number of times. And the point that they keep making to me is the thing that's left out of the bundle is the clinician going to the bedside and evaluating the patient and, and seeing whether or not there might be an alternative cause for the possibility of doing the sepsis bundle. And in some ways, the two of you, along with Tiffany Osborne, in your 2020 uh, ideas and opinion piece of who owns sepsis, really get to this, that this is, I, I loved reading that this is not just a critical care problem. This, this happens I work on the wards and, and my patients get evaluated for possible sepsis. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think big, big picture, everybody's coming from the right place. The critical care docs for the kinds of patients they want to see, the kinds of recommendations they're making are completely understandable. They're, they're seeing by definition a critically ill population at high risk of, uh, of, of immediate and imminent death. And so they're pushed towards very aggressive um, treatment requirements, Airing on the side of over-treatment rather than under-treating makes, makes perfect sense to that population. The reality is, though, that uh, the majority of sepsis certainly begins and in many cases takes place entirely outside the intensive care unit. And as for, for those of us who practice outside the intensive care unit, we're confronted with this much more nuanced population where there is certainly plenty of concern for sepsis, that a patient's syndrome, their delirium, or it might be driven by infection. But we know that there's a ton of other things that can cause those problems as well, be it fluid imbalances, electrolyte imbalances, medication side effects, you know, so, so on and so on and so forth. 
and that um, to, to sort of leap to calling everything a function of infection and therefore sepsis leads to missing a bunch of other really important things and, and therefore a sort of a tunnel vision that leads to, to over, over treatment of patients who don't require this. And so because the current sepsis definitions do capture so much that's outside the intensive care unit, taking the perspectives of emergency department doctors, of hospitalists, of other practitioners who, are, who work in those areas, this just seems to me a critical need to bring balance to our overall picture of sepsis and sepsis management. Just to restate what you're saying, uh, and the way I read it, is there are really different grades of sepsis. It's just like when someone comes in with pneumonia, we have a score that says how severe the pneumonia is, the pneumonia severity score. And there's also probably should be some kind of sepsis severity score. These people are so sick and have such a high probability of having infection that the bundle might really help. These people we need to look at and we need to examine them. Does that make sense at all? It totally makes sense. So I think that's been one of, one of our, our big themes for the past uh, couple of years um, as we respond to the, the SEP1 measure and to the surviving sepsis campaigns. Sepsis does take place along a continuum of severity. On, on the far end of the spectrum is septic shock, which are those patients who have very, very severe disease who are at high risk of dying immediately if we don't sort of intervene to save their lives right now. And for that, that population, we have no problem with sort of recommendations that, that CMS is, uh, is making. It seems perfectly appropriate. The issue is that septic shock only affects maybe 15% of the, uh, of the septic population. And for the other 85%, that's, uh, that's not the reality. That there, there is more time to, to get the diagnosis right before intervening without clear downstream negative effects for the patients. And there are a number of studies now that, that, that support this, that, that, are, that stratify the septic population to septic shock versus non-septic shock, and so show sort of a strong relationship between time to antibiotics and mortality for septic shock that does not hold true for sepsis without shock. We often have hours or even more to get further clarity about the diagnosis in the non-shock population. And so we don't think this should be a one-size-fits-all. We feel like you really should take into account how sick the patient is and calibrate your response, the aggressiveness of your response accordingly. Chanu, the article that the two of you wrote the editorial on about what is going on, and this was all done, I think, in Pittsburgh, Right. the treatment patterns, clinical outcomes, you then wrote this nice editorial about has the performance measure done anything to improve outcomes in sepsis? Maybe you could take us through that. So the editorial was, was obviously written to comment on um, the study from Ian Barbash and colleagues, and they did a very nice analysis um, of uh, trying to tease apart the real-world impact of SEP1 in their healthcare system, in the UPMC healthcare system. So they did a, a nice time series analysis. They used uh, electronic health record data to identify patients with suspected infection and organ dysfunction when they came into the hospital. And then they basically tried to see uh, sort of uh, how did processes of care change before and after that one was implemented and how did mortality change. And sort of the bottom line was that there was some association with changes in processes of care. The most notable one was, you know, a substantial increase in lactate testing. To a lesser degree, there was an increase in broad uh, spectrum antibiotic administrations within the first couple of hours, as well as uh, uh, aggressive fluid management. But despite those changes, they did not see a significant change in the uh, trends in the mortality of these patients with suspected sepsis. And I will say, just commenting on the study, I think one important strength 
of this study was their definition of sepsis. So as you know, we're really, you know, we've really been focused on sort of how you, how are you defining the population of interest? And sort of one challenge with a lot of the studies that look at the impact of sepsis bundles or various quality improvement initiatives is that they sort of loosely define patients with sepsis. They leave, maybe they leave it up to physician diagnosis or they use administrative coding data. And we pointed out uh, multiple times sort of the, the potential bias that that creates because sepsis is a very heterogeneous term. And essentially when you have these quality improvement initiatives, part of the mission is always to raise awareness of sepsis and raise sort of the clinician's propensity to diagnose sepsis. And essentially that can lead to an ascertainment bias as you basically include more and more patients as quote unquote sepsis in your denominator that can really potentially um, lead to an artifactual apparent decrease in your mortality, if that makes sense. So I think that the study uh, by Barbash and colleagues is important because they used a objective uh, clinical criteria for their um, definition of sepsis rather than relying on physician diagnoses or administrative data. So I think that makes it a, a much more um, robust study. Do you have anything to add to that, Michael? First, I want to take my hats off to these investigators. I thought they did a terrific study using very rich clinical data, sophisticated analytic method. Uh, they took into account secular trends. They took into account how sepsis was, uh, was defined. I, I just think it's an amazing piece of work. And then to have, have that in our back pocket shown that across 11 hospitals, the implementation of the SEP1 bundle led to some changes in process of care, but no change in patient outcomes really is such an important take-home message. Hospitals are really spinning their wheels trying to meet the requirements of the SEP1 measure. And we do what we do to make things better for patients, to improve outcomes, and to put all that effort into meeting the requirements of this measure and not to realize a benefit. I think it's just a very important learning for us that we need to then bring back to our policymakers and say, where are we now? Yeah, so I, I know that uh, the Infectious Disease Society of America has taken a very strong stance on this topic. And I think you've written about, uh, the two of you have written about this elsewhere. What should we be doing? Uh, what, what should the organized medicine be doing to try to influence uh, Medicare to rethink how we go about thinking about sepsis? I think, first of all, um, recognizing that, that CMS is coming from the right place. CMS recognized that, C that sepsis is a, 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 exerts a large burden on patients, on healthcare systems in terms of morbidity, in terms of, uh, of cost. It's in all our shared interest to try to do something about that. So I think that acknowledging that CMS is, its head is in the right space is, I think, the first thing. And IDSA, I think, therefore, doesn't want to be antagonistic to CMS, but wants to partner with CMS and trying to find ways to, to meet our shared goal of making outcomes better for, for septic patients. I think there's sort of two pathways to follow. One is to say, to take the existing process measure-oriented measure and say, what, what can we do to hone in on the things that are really most likely to, to matter for patients and minimize the things that are likely to cause harm? And the other is, um, are there other ways, other kinds of measures that we might implement that are more likely to, to take us further in terms of improving outcomes for patients. So on the first side, IDSA, I think, recognizes that the, uh, the double-edged sword is antibiotics, that they're, they're at once, I think, the most powerful thing you can do for a septic patient, which makes sense because it's an infection that's driving the syndrome. Um, and yet they're also the potentially the most, uh, most, most harmful if you uh, deploy them in a willy-nilly fashion against patients who don't actually have an, a bacterial infection. And so can we work together to, uh, to define a subset of patients who are more likely to actually have a bacterial infection to need timely antibiotics 
And we think that's probably the septic shock population. And can we allow for more clinical judgment as to, to, to when antibiotics ought to, to be given for that particular population? And that's um, simplifying the measure of what constitutes time zero and using a more clinical, more clinician-directed anchor for when that, that, that clock ought to begin for when we give a patient antibiotics. So I think, I think that's sort of one push from, from RDSA. The other push would be to say, we saw from the Barber study that changing these processes of care is not leading to a meaningful change in outcomes. So instead of tracking processes of care with all the challenges that that, that entails, we should really be tracking the outcome, which is what's the mortality rate for, for septic patients? And can we do that in a, in a way that's where we, we, we're tracking that outcome in an efficient, electronic, objective, risk-adjusted fashion? And therefore, we're saying to hospitals, your goal is to increase survivorship and good outcomes for patients with sepsis. How you do that, we're going to allow you more flexibility. And that's recognizing that sepsis itself is a very heterogeneous population. So what's right for person A is not necessarily right for person B. And we're going to allow you to have the flexibility to do that. If you want to borrow from the existing bundles for some subset of your population, go ahead and do that. If you have other good ideas about ways to improve the process of care, go ahead and do that. What we're going to hold you to, rather, is what's your sepsis mortality rate after we've adjusted for the kinds of patients that you're, you're, you're seeing. We feel that like that's going to give us both, allow more room for hospitals to innovate, to tailor to different kinds of patient populations, and to tell us if we're meeting the ultimate goal that we all have, which is improve outcomes. If you want to improve outcomes, let's measure outcomes. So I'm going to give you a simple way of thinking about this, uh, at least this is the way I think about it, which by definition is simple, that before we endorse a process measure to try to improve an outcome measure, we should test that process measure and show that it improves the outcomes in some kind of a fashion. And this is what, this is the chronic problem of many performance measures is that they haven't been prospectively tested to show that they are evidence-based. And to summarize what uh, the, both of you have been saying is that we used a small piece of evidence that did not track with where the bundle is being used, and nobody did a test to see what are going to be the implications, which is exactly the criticism of the four-hour pneumonia bundle, which caused all kinds of problems and eventually was rescinded. So I'm going to give both of you uh, the last word for the people who listen to this podcast, many, many students, residents, hospitalists, primary care physicians, and hopefully we'll get a lot of ID and critical care people to listen to you. So this is your uh, soapbox. So who wants to go first? I'll just briefly try. I mean, I think you summarized it really nicely, Bob, and, and Mike uh, also as well. And sort of uh, just acknowledging again that CMS is really, I think, coming from the right place and really trying to, to make a difference sort of, you know, in this, in this terrible disease process, which obviously has a high morbidity and mortality. Um, yes, you know, I think sort of the, the arguments are around sort of how best to, to, to get to that goal. I'll just briefly say, I think, uh, you know, as important as a study by um, Barbash and colleagues is, um, you know, I think we should acknowledge that this was done in one healthcare system, you know, with 11 hospitals and in a system that's, uh, you know, long been a, a leader in emergency and critical care. So um, I think for sure there, there, you know, there, there should be and there will be more studies looking at this in a broader, um, you know, different sets of hospitals, you know, nationwide to, you know, confirm, uh, you know, either confirm or refute these findings and sort of add to our knowledge about the impact of step one. Completely agree. And uh, I just want to pick up on your, um, your point that if we want to put in place a new 
quality measure or a, a metric that, that we have to test it ahead of time. And I, I simply wanted to, to add further that we have to test it in a randomized fashion that so much of, of the quality improvement literature is based upon before after analyses, which are so subject to, to potential bias. The big bias for the sepsis studies is the one that, that Chanu was describing, which is ascertainment bias, which is that if you put in place a quality improvement measure to try to improve sepsis care, part and parcel is improving sepsis recognition, which means you then pick up the less sick patients and therefore you will see a decrease in mortality rates. But is that due to increased recognition or is that due to better care? So, and I think the same is true of a number of other assessments of metrics associated at trying to improve uh, infection outcomes. A lot of the diagnosis of infection is subjective and quality improvement initiatives by definition tend to be open label. They tend to be done by people who have an interest in seeing a positive outcome. So they want to be able to show a decrease in the, the infection rate or the mortality rate. And that therefore leaves these studies very open to bias when done in a, uh, in a, in a longitudinal fashion. So I think we have to prove that what we propose to do works before we make everybody do it. And randomized trials are, I think, an incredible necessity for, in this particular space. Well, I can't thank the two of you enough for the articles you've written and the wisdom that you've shown about this complex topic and for joining me on the podcast. And I uh, uh, really appreciate your writing and your thought processes uh, on this topic. Terrific. Well, thank you so much. It's been, a, been an enjoyable conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This discussion points out that the sepsis bundle is really focused on septic shock, but the way it's implemented, it gets applied to possible sepsis without shock. With the article in the recent annals and other data, this bundle does not seem to improve outcomes, yet it costs much time for physicians, patients, and much money for the hospital in collecting the data and sending it to CMS. Dr. Klompas and Dr. Ree suggest a broader group of physicians to reconsider the bundle and undertake prospective studies to see if any possible measures could result in improved outcomes. The idea behind the sepsis bundle is pure. It's trying to find the right implementation that will really help improve outcomes for patients. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.